0: Notice this is a song. He sings the song. Why do you think the song was written? Why do you think he even prayed? To whom did he pray? He prayed to the God of promises. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit ThisIsShoreline.com. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We just sang the song, Praise Mercy is more. Lord, we read a passage like this and it seems very gloomy and dark and depressing. But Lord, we know that your mercy is more. Help us be attentive, help us fixate our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith whom we will know that this text points to. Lord, help us all to be focused upon you, that we may glorify your son, Jesus Christ, in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, we uh, just went through the, this psalm, and uh, we kind of maybe feel a little bit depressed after reading that, don't we? It's like, wow, that was really dark. Kind of like a mid-2000s emo kid. We feel a little depressed reading that. And it even finishes with that statement, my companions have become darkness. And you think, wow, that really is emotional. And remember how it starts off. It's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. Yeah, this is a song. This was written and sang to the choir master. That means it's not just one person singing this. This is a plethora of people singing this song. These were the songs that were sung in the synagogues when Jesus was walking in the earth. Much like a lot of the songs that we have today. It's kind of a sad song. I don't know about you, I, uh, I have a bunch of different playlists on my Spotify channel, and one of them is actually called Sad Songs. So, I know it's a little weird, but I know, uh, you know, we all kind of like sad songs a little bit, don't we? When we're, we're feeling a little bit you know, dispassionate, a little bit cold and heartless a little bit, and you're like, it's like, oh, I gotta remember I'm a human, not a robot. I need to have the whole range of human emotions On it are songs like Don't Take the Girl by Tim McGraw. If you know that song, that like, that rips you up. (laughs) Or Last Kiss by J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers, another really sad song. But I think we all kind of really like sad songs, don't we? We like to listen to it uh, when we're feeling on the inside, when we're really sad, but we have to have that tough outer shell on. We listen to the song and then we start crying in our car and someone's looking at you like, what's going on? And you're like, it's just a sad song. They're like, oh, okay, that's fine. And just move forward. You know, we may be sad because of the things in our life. We look around the world and we see things crumbling, don't we? We ask ourselves and others that one question that everyone asks. Why does God allow evil in this world? This is often the question that both believers and unbelievers ask, right? It's not just isolated to one group of people, but everyone asks this. They look at the world and they see something's not right. And they say, why does God allow for evil in this world? But I want to submit that it's actually not quite the right question. It's close, but not it's not there yet because it's missing something. For example, a tornado is an evil thing. It's the natural evils that occur because of the sin that exists in this world. So a tornado out in the Gulf, we don't really think much of it. But what about a tornado of the same exact size that blasts through a school building We think a lot more about that, don't we? Let's complicate it a little bit more. What about, instead of a tornado ramming through a school building, what about a gunman? We think that's even more evil than the tornado that goes through, don't we? See, a lot of times, armchair philosophers like to sit and stay well, all evil is just evil. True enough. But we must be like our Lord Jesus Christ who did recognize that there were variations of evil. Did he not say they, are, they have committed the greater sin? So all sin is evil. But there is a degree, isn't there? And one of these degrees of evil or measurements of metrics that we are to measure evil by is suffering. So I want to pose the real question, not, not just why does evil, why does God allow for evil in this world? But why does God allow for suffering in this world? That's the real question. And that's what, this text addresses us today. This psalmist is not asking this question as if it's some sort of intellectual exercise, is he? No, he's, he's asking this question in the midst of anguish, in the midst of despair and depression, agony. He's asking this question in what is often called the dark night of the soul. It's not like the other psalms. We see in several psalms, they start off, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you downcast within me? But then they kind of wrap around and say, but yet I will still praise you, my God and my Savior. No, this, this one brings us down with him into the pit of despair, through the slew of despond and loneliness. And this loneliness creeps in and this loneliness eventually becomes all he has. James Montgomery Boyce said of this Psalm, he said, it is good that we have a Psalm like this, but it is good that we only have one. It reminds us that life is filled with trouble, even, uh, even to the point of despair, even for mature believers. There's a story of Dr. Boyce. He and a friend were talking once and said, why isn't there any good Christian literature anymore? And they both came to the conclusion that because none of it is true to life See, this psalm is very true to life, isn't it? This one reminds us of the dark clouds that we have in life that sometimes the physical reality that we live in is not a happy one. And sometimes this physical life that we live in may not end with a happy ending. It may not end with a blessing right around the corner. It may not end with a coming breakthrough. Now we know that everything, all things turn out well in the end when Christ returns and abolishes all sin and death and all suffering is gone. We know that. But our physical life and our situation may not end well based upon our standards. You see, this life will actually end in despair And you might think, but what if I die happy? What if I I received all the things that I wanted and desired and longed for in this life? But you still die. The whole message of the book of Ecclesiastes you get all these things, but you die. This should point us back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible because of this curse that is upon us. Because of our sin. Because of our disobedience towards God's law. We think and we try to justify to make ourselves feel a little bit better and we say, well, death's just a natural part of life. No, it's not. Death is quite literally the opposite of life. It's not part of it. Death is a curse upon us. This was not what was supposed to happen. And yet this is what happens now. And when it does happen, even if somebody we know is expected to, we know something's not right. We're, we're still jarred and we're, we're frustrated and angry sometimes because somebody died. This is where our psalmist is here today. It, he brings much despair, almost as if he's given up on God, but not completely. Because while he doesn't go back to hope at the end, he still prays to God anyway. This brings us to our text. We see it broken down into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 6. There is a cry for help. Verses 7 through 13, there is a plea for mercy. And verses 14 through 18, there is the dawn of darkness. Take a look with me at verse 1. O oh Lord, God. Of my salvation. Notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, Oh God who saves, or You are the God of salvation. But he internalizes it, he makes it his own. He says, God of my salvation. So what does this say? What does this say about the man who is writing this song? It says that he's a believer. That he is a believer in God. That he is following the law to the best of his ability. This is not somebody who just doesn't know who God is or denies God. No, this is someone who knows him. And this should provide a framework for the rest of this psalm. So if he's a believer, why not just rejoice through it? Why do we speak this over our lives? As if we can speak things into the universe, as if we are God and create them. The question here is, can a believer be truly depressed. And if we actually believe what the Bible says, then our only answer is yes. Take a look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. This is the apostle Paul speaking and this is his second letter to the church in Corinth. And he wants to inform them of what is going on. And he says, for we do not want you to be unaware. Brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying that he dreaded waking up each morning because he didn't have the energy or the strength to live each day. What a humbling statement and what a a powerful statement from somebody who has been broken, shattered. But notice also this in Psalm 88 this is also not just some one-off prayer. No, he says, I cry out day and night before you. So many times we, we are, you know, when we're with people, we pray for about 30 seconds and then somebody else is like, oh my goodness, come on. Or when we're in our own private time, we pray for, pray for one whole minute. And we kind of run out of things to pray about and we say, all right, God, that's about it. Or if we're really spiritual, then we use biblical phrases saying, you know what, God, I, yeah, the spirit knows what to pray for when I don't. You know, now while this is true, we're not using this passage correctly if we do it that way. No, this psalmist cries out, He prays to God day and night. This is the psalmist's way of saying he is unrelenting in his prayers. But we give up so quickly if we don't get the answer we want when we want it. Maybe this is a good position that we should be in. That we are broken so lowly that God brings us to despair that we become unrelenting in our own prayers. Maybe suffering should not be seen as something to avoid, but suffering should be seen as the tool in which God uses to teach us. Samuel Rutherford, the great Puritan, once said it is faith's work to claim and challenge loving kindness. Out of all of the toughest strokes of God, why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that make deep furrows in my soul? I know he is no idle husbandman. He purposeth a crop. What he's saying is that faith allows us to grab hold, to claim and to challenge. It's not saying that he's going against Rather, he's saying he's pushing forward in the world, grabbing hold of the faith and the loving kindness that God has and that God has demonstrated. Even though all the toughest strokes and lashes that God may give us. Why should I tremble at the plow, the the farm tool that digs deeply into the ground? The Lord's plow digs deeply into our soul that make deep furrows in my soul. I know he's no idle husbandman. He purposeth a crop. God brings these trials because he wants us to be like Christ. He's doing this to bring about our good. We look at the remainder portion of this section, verses two through six, we see uh, that the psalmist, he, he's saying that he's close to the grave, but we, we don't exactly know whether if he was just either ailing physically, if he was older, or, or if he was in such deep despair and loneliness that he wanted to die. We don't know which one. I tend to think it's that, that latter one because of all of the things that he says through the remainder of the psalm. You see, he's, I believe that he says some of these things because his, he, he wants his physical body to be like what he feels like on the inside. And this is a deep and dark thing to say, isn't it? But how many, how many people today say things, maybe not exactly this way, but they say things like, I wonder what this world would be like without me. Or uh, maybe I should just, you know, go kill myself or something like that. And they, they make jokes about suicide. You see, this only brings about a truer reality that is deep because what they are doing is they're testing the waters to, to see what that world would look like if they left in such a violent way. But regardless, whether if it is somebody who uh, has these suicidal tendencies or or is close to death in some sort of outside way, regardless of either of these, we know that death, whether self-inflicted or other caused, reminds us of that curse, doesn't it? It reminds us of this curse that is not a natural part of life. It reminds us of our disobedience toward God. And we must reject what the world says about death, that it is motionless, ceaseless. No, we know that we live beyond this grave. We know that death is not eternal because Christ comes again and abolishes death. We must reject what the world says about death about life, about joy. Too many of us are wanting to seek what the world says about these various things. But they're wrong. We know what the Bible says about death. It's not okay. It's an enemy. And it will be defeated. This leads us into our Next section, the plea for mercy. Taking a look at verses seven to nine, <clears throat> we, the question that, that kind of kept coming up to me as I'm studying and preparing for this is, what do we do when death is so close to us? It's so tangible that you could just reach out and touch it. What do we do? Well, first one, remember, recognize what is death. already stated this multiple times, but I want you to look at the pronouns. Look down at your Bibles again, verses seven to nine. <clears> he <throat> says, or let's start with six. Uh, you have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you Overwhelm me, not in a good way, with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I may not escape. Notice the pronouns. Who is the one that is causing all these things? we may think to ourselves and we try to justify, we try to defend God here and by saying, oh no, this is just the psalmist's perception of what God is doing. No. This is what God is doing. That might mess up some of our belief systems. God is causing these things? Yes. We'll get back to that reason in just a moment, but I I also want you to notice verse nine. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. This is that plea for mercy. He is still, despite all this, reaching out to the Lord for mercy you know, we often recognize the reality that's around us, but we don't quite put ourselves rightly in that reality, do we? We see the brokenness of everything and everyone else, but we either deny or neglect the brokenness that's within us. Some of us may recognize the brokenness, but deny that which soothes and balms that brokenness. Now, sometimes this is caused by our own doings, right? We, you know, you royally like mess something up with your spouse and you're like, God, why is this happening to me? No, that's on you, buddy. But it's not always that way, is it? A lot of times it's actually caused from, without circumstances that happen to us but despite whether if it's self-caused or others-caused, we both come to the same, these circumstances with the same thing. We come with the thought and the idea, I do not deserve this. Maybe that guy over there does, but not me. I'm a good person. If I may so boldly say Says who? You? Ha. No. We, we cannot look to God and say, God, if you don't abide by my standards, then you're the bad one here, not me. But yet, that's exactly what we do, isn't it? We judge God based upon our standards. And the problem with that is that even our standards, what we think is goodness It's also broken. Think about it. Why do you help others? Well, because it makes me feel good. Why do you love other people? Because of how they make me feel. So your act of selflessness is actually selfish. Your act of love is actually loveless. Because does love seek its own? It does not. You see, we are judged on one standard. If you guys were here in the month of October, we went through the five solas of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. This isn't some sort of cool catchphrase for theology that because it's in Latin, no. No. This is the ethical standard in which Christians ought to be living. That is, your whole purpose in life is to be doing all things to the glory of God forever. And if you're not doing that, then this is called sin, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the, what? Glory Glory of God. So you're either glorifying God in all things or you're stealing from God by living for yourself. Even if you're trying to be a good person, you're doing it based upon your standards. If you switch that up a little bit, if you switch it based upon God's law as the standard, you'll find out very quickly that you are not as good of a person as you thought you were. we look at the remaining part of this section, verses 10 through 13, and we notice something. There are a bunch of questions. How many of us in our deep despair and anguish have thrown a bunch of questions to God? Haven't we? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, why? What, what's going on here? Lord, Lord I, I, I need answers. Lord, I demand answers. If you look at the questions specifically, they seem to be designed in such a way to provoke God, to call God to action, to say, God, show me your hand of cards. We ask these questions But we need to be careful so that we don't accuse God when we are asking them. Again, we start making ourselves sort of morally superior to God when we do this. Look at the questions just briefly here. He says, do the departed rise up to praise you? Obviously not you might think, wait a second, there's a couple people that were raised from the dead. Yeah, but when they rise up, are they dead or alive? They're alive, exactly. So the dead are not raising up to praise you. The living are raising up to praise you. Dead people don't rise up and sing. That'd be weird. He continues, he says, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Again, dead people don't declare anything. So, as far as the psalmist goes, the dead are silent toward God. And God is silent toward them. This may be why he says, Count me among the dead, because he feels God's silence toward him so strongly. That's why I cringe every time I hear somebody walk out of church service and they say, man, I really felt the spirit there today. Or, Or in their prayer life, they say something like, man, the Lord's been really speaking to me. One, these are not biblical phrases. Do not use them if you are a believer. Second, when you say this, and if you say it to a person who is suffering, you only compound their suffering. Because this is, this is what happens, okay? Person one says, man, I really felt the spirit today. I, I didn't really feel anything. Oh, the Lord's really been speaking to me. Well, I'm glad he's speaking to somebody because it ain't me. I haven't heard anything. This is why we don't use unbiblical phrases or biblical phrases poorly. You see, the counseling that needs to be done to somebody who leaves these sorts of churches is vast. I've seen a number of cases because they need to be retrained in how to think in proper true, good categories that says that God speaks through his word. Not in the wind or the falling leaves off of a tree or in the rainbow that's your special sign with you and God. There's two truths that a Christian must believe simultaneously and they almost sound contradictory, but they're not. But they're true because scripture says they're true. The first is that God is transcendent. That is, he is above all things and he is sovereign Lord. And we often don't have a problem with that, do we? We're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I believe that. But sometimes we believe that he's so transcendent that he can't hear us because he's too far away. The second truth is God's eminence. That he is with us that he is among us. Not in the falling leaf off of a tree or in the rainbow, but in God, his son, whom he sent in the flesh. He is with us, with his spirit, whom he has sent to reside with all believers. God is the one that is with us he is the one that came to us. He is not the one running from us. We were the ones that ran from him. Remember what Genesis 3 says? God comes and goes to walk with Adam like he always did. And what does God say? Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know. He's trying to lure Adam out. You see, it was us that were hiding from God. And we still do that today, don't we? When we feel that shame and, and brokenness, we say, I can't go to church. I can't, I can't go before God's people or before the Lord with this shame and brokenness that I have. And we have it backwards. We must run when we have that shame and that brokenness. This psalmist is asking all of these questions in the midst of loss, struggles, and pain. How many of us have experienced loss? You don't have to raise your hands, just think about it loss of a grandparent, parent, sibling, spouse, a child. how many of us has experienced brokenness in such a way that we know no one else can understand a spouse who has walked away from the faith entirely a spouse who no longer wants to be with us because we converted to christianity What about a parent who never truly loved you because of their sin? Or never receiving the child that you've prayed for for so long? These are deep losses that even people within this church experience. But don't be afraid to go to the Lord. Not only in prayer, but with your questions. But don't use your questions as a disguise to accuse God of wickedness. Finally, we get to our last section, the dawn of darkness. The man making this prayer is not like the psalmist who wrote Psalm 13 and 42. He doesn't come back to hope. These are not, it doesn't start with depressed petitions to God and rounds them off by remembering the promises and plans and past works of God. I actually really like the way the NIV renders this. Notice uh, it's in verse 18, but the NIV, NIV states it this way. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. It's pretty dark. And it's a very poetic way of saying that he is deeply lonely However, notice it's not complete hopelessness. You might think, wow, it really looks like it. I mean, even verse 18 says darkness is its last word. So darkness kind of gets the last word. That is the way we feel sometimes, right? Darkness getting that last word. But notice all the way back in verse one, what does he do? What's verse one say? It says, "O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. So he's not completely hopeless because he's still running to the Lord in prayer. He's still demonstrating that mustard seed size of faith, just enough strength to go to the Lord. The mark of a true believer is not, not having depression the mark of a true believer is running to the Lord through the depression that you may have. And while this psalmist remembers the promises of God, he doesn't seem to remember that they're for him. We can either stand over this man, and say, Oh, you of little faith. Don't you believe in the promises of God? Or we can rightly go to him and say, hey, brother, I know you're struggling. Let's look to God's word and see the promises of God that are for us. Lastly, concerning the text itself, we can't have a true exposition of the text without seeing how this is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus said in Luke 24, he said that uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So how does Psalm 88 point us to Christ? We think, this is going to be a tough one because this seems pretty hopeless. And while darkness does get the last word literally, and as it stands, we, it seems that we have a silent God who may or may not actually be there. And if he is, he's just listening to our sufferings and not doing anything about it. How many times do we feel that way? How many times do we begrudgingly come to prayer and come to church because we either think that God's either not there or not listening? And why won't he answer my prayers if he is there? I want to direct our attention to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. The author here has just listed multiple people throughout the Old Testament by faith this person, by faith this person, by faith that person. And he comes to this passage saying that it has always been by faith alone and never by what we perceive to be good works. He's saying it doesn't matter how good you think you are, that's not what gets you to Christ. It is by faith alone and Christ alone. So, the author of the Hebrews brings us here saying, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, well, they would have had the opportunity to return but as it is, they desire a better country. They wanted something better than Egypt or Israel or Landover? No, it says they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. And if you look at that, those first few words there, it says, these all died in faith not having received the things they were promised. A lot of times we think, well, we should, we're in the faith, right? When do these people live? Before or after Christ? Before or after Christ? Before? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so why is it that they only greeted them from afar? Well, because they died before Jesus was alive. What does that tell us? That means all of the promises and all of the things promised are fulfilled in Christ. If they're fulfilled in Christ, well then, yeah, all those who lived before, they were looking toward the fulfillment of the promise. What does that mean for us today? We look back at the promise already fulfilled. We look to Christ. You see, these people of faith held on. They demonstrated faithfulness because God himself has demonstrated faithfulness. And like Ecclesiastes 3, 4, which is both a a encouraging verse, but an enlightening verse as well, says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. You see, it's enlightening because it tells you what the whole range of emotions that a human should be feeling, but it's encouraging because it says the time to mourn is only temporary. It's not that we look forward to the alleviation of our suffering. Rather, we as believers know when suffering ends. We know on that day, when Christ returns and destroys all sin and death and kills death itself, it is the last enemy to be defeated. When we are made new and all things are made new, like Eden, but even better because there's permanence. What a great day that will be. But as we see, the book of Hebrews actually continues. We see that while the darkness may have a hold, again, it's only temporary. Darkness doesn't seem to get the last word because the promises were available to our psalmist. But he only greeted them from afar. Take a look with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is all of these people who have gone before us, they, they are this great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by them. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated now. He is the king of heaven and earth now. We are not waiting for this to come. He is king right now. And if we believe in Jesus Christ and him alone, by faith alone, we too can participate in the promises of God. I open with the idea that despair and death should remind us of this curse. Back in Genesis 2, we see, you know, the words of God to Adam, uh, whoever eats of this tree shall surely die in that day. Well, what happened? They ate of it and cursed all humanity. Thanks, Adam and Eve. But later we read throughout Genesis. Genesis 3 is the fall. Genesis 4 is the first death. Abel, martyred by his brother. And then Genesis 5, this person lived for this long and died. This person lived for this long and died. This person lived for that long and died. And we tend to skip over passages like that because it's just kind of redundant and boring. But what's it doing? It's reminding us death is all around us and death is inevitable for all of us. It points us back to that curse. But there was a promise in that curse. Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. We cling to that, but we're like, wait a second. How does this bring us to this? We we know that big arc of scripture, we get that, but how does it bring us to our text? Moving forward in Deuteronomy, chapter 21 through uh, verses 22 through 23. Seems very odd, just kind of thrown in there, but I want you to read this text and think about Think about it for a second. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, and his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. Think about that for a second. Does it sound familiar? Who was the one that the curses of God were placed upon him? Who was the one whose body was hanged on a tree outside the city? Who was the one that was taken down the same day and his body buried the same day? Paul says to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. Christ became that curse, that curse that we have and that we deserve. But it is by grace that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and suffer that curse for us so that we may no longer have to. I like the way James Hamilton, theologian, brilliant man, he put it this way, and I love the way he says it, the pattern of He-Man's experience was fulfilled in the one who was, forsake, uh, who was forsaken that his people might be comforted, who was made a curse that his people might be blessed, who, was, uh, who borne the sins of his people in his body on the tree, who was baptized in the waters of wrath that his people may rise up with him in newness of life, who suffered outside the camp to open the way to the holy places. You see, Christ fulfills this text because Christ became the curse for this psalmist like he did us. Christ went into the darkness where this psalmist is. Christ did this for the psalmist because the psalmist called upon the name of the Lord, the God of his salvation. Will we do that today? So what, is this, what does this text require of us? Three things. For all, for the church, and for the hurting. For all, it's a model of both prayer and care. There's no getting around that. The Bible is full of suffering and suffering people. We see this psalmist, other psalmists. We see Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who also wrote the book of lamentations we see job jesus in gethsemane paul the apostle that we quoted earlier you see the balm for our soul it's not more therapy or pop psychology especially if it's disguised as christianity too often that is going around today. These, sol- these solutions tell us to do this or that. But how can we do some sort of burdensome task list if we can't even get up in the morning? If our despair has just bound us so deeply. you See, this text actually tells us that we're actually allowed to feel depressed. We are. It's staying in this depression and being satisfied in it that we are not allowed to do. Depression doesn't always mean you're in sin. It can, but not always. It could just mean that you recognize the brokenness that this world is full of. So because it's okay to feel depressed, next time somebody comes up to you and says, how you doing? And you say, I'm okay. That's a lie people, it is. You, what you can do is, you know what, I, I'm not okay right now, but I, I don't wanna talk about it right now. Okay, I'll be praying for you and when you, when you want to, I'm here to listen. I'm here to listen. How can we be open and honest with one another whom we can see if we're not open, or how can we be open and honest with God whom we can't see if we're not open and honest with those whom we can? We need to be open and honest and that gives us our model for prayer, being open and honest with God. But I've already stated the model for care. It's, listen. This this text provides an insight to the soul who's hurting. Listen. Don't give a series of patent-polished answers that you found in a textbook or heard on a podcast. Yeah, they might give you a framework and categories in which to think properly, but listening, listen to those who are hurting. Avoid oversimplified answers. Hey, you know, I'm really hurting. Well, God's sovereign. Cool, bro. Thanks. So he's the one I have to go to to get rid of this. Or, you know, Romans 8.28 says, you know, God works all things together for good. All right, well, thanks, man. Avoid these oversimplified answers. For the church, there is a need for sound doctrine, a deep need for it. Real Christians experience real suffering and real depression. A broken, or excuse me, a church without broken people is actually a broken church. Ironically, a church with broken people is also a broken church too. Charles Spurgeon actually put it perfectly. I love the way he says things. He says, if I had never joined a church till I found one that's, that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been perfect a perfect church after I had become a member of it. But he continues and he says, still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. The church should be a place of comfort and rest and peace for those who are hurting. We learned a few weeks ago that we are to be refreshed by the presence of believers This is why the church building was very often called the sanctuary. It is a safe place, a harbor, a place of peace to those whose earthly afflictions are so hard and so deep. Not only that, but we are comforted by the people of God with the word of God. The comfort the word of God provides, again, is the substance of the balm that prayer is. We're not just praying to some pie in the sky or some old man upstairs. No, we need sound doctrine to know who God is and all of who he is so that we can be comforted and strengthened and corrected if needed. We need sound doctrine to know what a true church is so that we may know who the people of God really are. We need sound doctrine to know who Christ is. He is God with us. He is God with us in the miry bog. He is God with us in the slew of despond. He is God with us in the darkness. He is God with us in the pit. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For God is with me. Jesus is our God with us. Our Emmanuel. And while the balm for our soul is prayer, we pray to the God whom we know through sound doctrine. We don't just study theology so that we can have knowledge, but we study theology so that we may know the God whom we are running to in prayer. True and deep biblical theology provides hope and stability to those whose hearts are bruised reeds, battered and broken by the winds and waves of this world. Sound doctrine points us to the correct path. Prayer brings us down that correct path. Finally, for the hurting, bring nothing, yes, nothing, absolutely nothing to the cross but yourself. If you, here sitting in these seats, if you are a Christian experiencing suffering, and the darkness may feel like it does get the last word sometimes, doesn't it? But it doesn't. Like the psalmist, we feel like we have nothing, no friends, no family, no strength, no wealth, no hope, no goals, aspiration, nothing positive to give for sure. It is precisely in that moment that we can run unhindered, casting off everything, running the race, clinging to Christ. What is it that the the hymn writer said? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing. It is precisely in that moment that we can run to Christ properly when we have nothing at all. So looking at Psalm 88, it's pretty dark, pretty despairing, but yet it's not hopeless. While this man doesn't ever come back around with happy thoughts and positive thinking, he does run to the Lord in prayer. Notice this is a song. He sings the song. Why do you think the song was written? Why do you think he even prayed? To whom did he pray? He prayed to the God of promises and the God of fulfilled promises. But this isn't some sort of dark ponderings of a depressed man. No. This is doctrinal hope for the deeply depressed. We know God. We know him. And he has come to us. But it kind of reminds us of the 139th Psalm. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The psalmist continues saying, Surely the darkness will cover me. And this is where this psalmist is today, isn't he? This is where some of us are today. But he continues, it says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day and the darkness is light to you. You see, God never promised in this cursed and fallen world that we would be without suffering. Never made that promise. But he has promised that he will not leave us. That he will be our light. And we have a God who can see in the dark. Those who are hurting, there's many of us. Those who are presently suffering, remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians one eight that he despaired of life itself? He didn't finish there. He didn't. He continued. He said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, just like our psalmist. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In our present sufferings, do not forget that Christ is coming again and he will end all of your sufferings, all of them. He will not only end all of your sufferings, but all the darkness, all the hurt and pain. And we look forward to that day when we hear with a loud voice. Not only is it a loud voice, but it's a loud voice from the throne of God saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore for the former things. Yes, he calls all these former things. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he doesn't even stop there. He continues. He says, and no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. You see, right now, if we see God's face, we will be killed. But on that day, we will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. What a glorious day we look forward to. But what about today? What about today? The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. But oh, Oh, the night has been won and I shall overcome yet not I but through Christ in me. You see that text in Revelation continues saying they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever And ever, you see this dark night of the soul will be brought into the eternal light of God and there will be no more darkness. And with all creation, we wait for the coming of Christ who restores all things, including us. But this hope is only for those who are in Christ. You see this same chapter that gives this beautiful promise that God himself wipes our tears away. Also lays out some curses for those who are not in Christ alone by faith alone. For those who are not Christians today. I do not promise that your hurting will stop when you come to Christ. I don't promise that. Bible never makes that clear but I do promise that there is an answer and an eventual stop to your suffering. And all of your searchings, whether if it is for joy, acceptance, or love, they will end. Because you will no longer be searching for those things, but the God who is those things. And I promise that the God who is with us will wipe away every tear from your eye and he will be with you through your sufferings. Finishing with the quote of Spurgeon. He says, there are many sorts of broken hearts and Christ is good at healing them all. Come to Christ today. Both believer and non-believer, come to him He is our hope. He is our sure foundation. Come to him in faith for he is a loving savior. Come to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, your word teaches us. It corrects us. It rebukes us even but it also comforts us and is the balm to our soul. Father, we've learned from your word today how we can love one another better and see how you fulfilled all of this by taking on the curse for us. Lord, if we are not a believer, let us come to you through Christ by faith today, now, not later, not tomorrow, now. Let us come, let us rejoice in our sufferings because we know they lead us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.